Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Whatever happens in the remaining few days before Paris, one of the stories, if not the story, of this year's Tour de France has been the resurgence of Mark Cavendish. Uncertain last year whether he'd even continue in the sport, let alone ride another tour, Cavendish has been spellbinding in the sprint finishes, finally equalling Eddie Merckx's record of 34 stage wins, opening up the possibility of even surpassing it. A gamble which has paid off for his veteran team boss, Patrick Lefebvre. Our guest is someone who's been alongside Cavendish for much of his career and knows his complex character well. Danish legend and Deconic Quickstep director sportif, Brian Holm. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Brian Holm of Deconic uh, Quickstep, you must be delighted by the way that Mark Cavendish is riding this Tour de France. That's a fact. To see Cav coming back after all this struggle, everything he did, you know, he had a, quite a few bad years, didn't he? Last two, three years wasn't too brilliant. And uh, I remember last year when uh, first time when he called me, he said, Brian, I want to come back to Quick Step. I saw like, what? Yes, I want to ride for Quick Step again, you know, and uh, he was telling what he liked about the team was mistake he left it you know and uh, he said can you ask Patrick you know I said here we go so uh, I looked at my cell phone I said well thank you so calling Patrick I said Patrick I have a brilliant idea what about having uh, Mr. Cavendish back and you know Patrick he wouldn't say yes or no hmm. yeah we see calling him again a few weeks after what about the idea with Cav yeah let's see you know and uh, I remember uh, where I was riding my bicycle in the city of Copenhagen when Patrick Lefebvre called me and said, Brian, you think Kev can win a race again? I said, yes, I'm sure he can win again. And uh, okay, he didn't say anything more. And uh, suddenly I saw he signed with the team and uh, everything was good. But okay, one thing is what I'm thinking. And then uh, to get again into real life uh, on the road, I mean, Talking is sometimes easy, isn't it? And uh, remember on the December training camp in uh, Calbe in Spain, our trainers, Vasily, Pilgrims, Tom Stales, we have a coffee in the afternoon. And I said, holy shit, the numbers of Calf, they good. He, he's good already now. Eh? Well, we see, yeah. And uh, then as when on the next camp, January, he was already better. And uh, he did the smaller races in Belgium to have him back. He did uh, Montserrat, Samin, strange small races, what he actually loved. He asked it to do it, Kev. And uh, he, he did good. I mean, he did really good in Montserrat. He could have won also Melier. Okay, he was faster. He went early. And Kev and the lead out was leaving a bit. Uh, uh, Grand Prix Samin, he in the cobblestones in the rain, he really did good. And uh, getting him into Turkey, winning there, 
he was winning and then you see ah okay it was only Philipson you know and uh, then he went to the next races I did uh, also a cover Bartley with him he was beaten on stage one but second he had actually because we did the team challenge right after he had the leader jersey one day in in a, in a mountain race so that was really a, that was something very special eh? so we, we knew he was on the right track but the next thing was getting into the Tour de France and what happening now uh, to be honest I, I did not see that coming I knew I remember also when I called Patrick and said maybe Catherine goes to the Tour I think he still have a few stage win uh, Patrick's only answer was it's nice with ambitions it's nice to have ambitions is that what you said I didn't know what he was thinking after that. Okay, here we go. That's what he said. Yes, that was Patrick's. And like he's a, he's a wise man, Patrick. So he didn't say yes or no. And the rest, of course, with Mr. Bennett, with Sam, was, of course, uh, what happened with his injury. You know, he's hit his knee on his ankle bar before tour of Belgium. And uh, Kev getting in last, very last moment getting in to Belgium where he shouldn't have been riding it after he didn't do too good in, in Huda del Sol and then getting into Belgium the first sprint that chose screw Marco and uh, and Kev and uh, somehow he came back and uh, he won the last one beating Caleb Ewan and then the heavy boys so uh, well he did it eh? didn't he yeah he did and at what point did you sort of start thinking well, Cavs really back on form now. Already in December last year, when the trainer, when his trainer Vasily, the Greek, his Greek trainer, <laughs> sounds strange, but he said he, he already said quite early. He said Cav gonna win with those numbers he pulling out. Cav gonna win. So I started to believe it. Of course, it happened step by step. I saw it also when he came back to Rod Ellingwood, Bahrain, Roger Hammond. I don't remember even Aldak was there. Last year, I, I really thought he would make it also. But uh, I mean, a lot of things happened, you know, it never really worked out. And, uh, you know, when Cav is in a, it's going bad, he can dig himself into a deep black hole also. And he did that for sure last year. And uh, But already on December camp, I knew he was coming back. And then I saw him in Turkey. And it's, he, in Turkey, he did. The sprint like a real sprinter, you know, like a fish in the water, you know, right and left, you know, and you thought, wow, for sure he's coming back now. It was a very good sign in Turkey and uh, then two of Belgium in the last stage, you know, well, he got it there. Watching the tour this year, it's clear that not only is he riding well, his attitude seems to be very positive again. He's engaged, he's confident. Uh, what do you think that's down to? Is it just that he's winning? Cav always believed himself he could win the Tour. There was no doubt for, in Cav's said he would come back and win the Tour. He just has to get into the Tour, you know. was major disappointment for him uh, with two years ago with Dimension. Big disappointment for him. He didn't do it with Brian. He always said to me, Brian, I promise you, with hand on the Bible, I could win the Tour again. So coming back, I mean, almost very little money more like a new professional money. To see him really putting all that effort into coming back, you know, he didn't ride for the money. He just loved ride because he loved cycling. You, you see big cyclists quitting. They can make a few million euros a year. They're still quitting. Cav coming back for not a zero, but for quite small money compared to a green jersey. So uh, for, for sure, he's a special character, Cav. And uh, 
He's positive now. I see his interview. He's smiling. He's speaking French. He's speaking Flemish. But well, who wouldn't do it after winning a? If he wouldn't have a positive positive mind after winning four stages in the tour, then he's never gonna be positive. But like, and I enjoy to see his interview with his small jokes. But uh, someday they're gonna turn around also again. <laughs> but I think it was a good lesson for Kev. You know, he was out a few years. You know, he learned a lot also about. I sound very old now about real life, you know, uh, about it's not a certain moment in life is going to go downhill also. And uh, for sure it did for Kev. And uh, I think it was a, a lesson he learned the last few years. And I think we see him, it's hard for me to see Kev ever being really humble, but I think for Kev, as humble he could be. <laughs> He's a complex character, isn't he? How, and you've known him for years and worked with him for years, how do you motivate him? First of all, we doesn't talk too much about cycling. I mean, we can talk about music, we can talk about cars, property, houses, whatever. The best way to motivate Kev is just having faith in him, believing him. When he complain about something, actually listen to him. When he say uh, something wrong with the bike, don't take it for ex- excuse. He wouldn't say it if something was wrong with a bicycle. He really believe in it. So the worst thing you could do with him is not believing him, what he's saying. Eh? We just think if you probably have a problem you have to solve. So with Kev, it's quite simple. If you really have faith in Kev, in Kev like even for sure it's going to be dark periods also. I mean, he, Kev always say like, why I always have to prove myself? Why do I always have to prove I'm a, a good cyclist? And I really understand him because even when he was young, when he came to the team, he always had to prove himself. We have meeting with even the good old days, HCC, uh, T-Mobile, uh, Columbia, whatever we was called. Every tour selection, he was always on the edge for the selection because he probably was about to screw it in, in a Dauphiné or Switzerland, whatever he do, he was thrown out for something. You remember when he passing in Romandy, giving the fingers to the commissaires or to the public, you're saying, oh, what have you done now? So we had the meeting, would bring him, somebody would say at the meeting, now he's not good enough, he's too fat, you know, he's doing this and that. So he always has to prove himself like he did years. And he also said, Brian, why? Uh, I have to prove myself always. It's always me who have to fight and fight and fight. You, know, you say, because sometimes you can be such a rubbish cycling, you can't past the bloody bridge, highway bridge, and you drop. That's probably a part of the explanation. You can go to Tour of Slovakia two weeks before the Tour de France. He did one year, probably 2016. After stage two, he didn't make the time cut, and he was home. I remember he was with Dimension. I was quick step. I thought, <laughs> we're not going to have any problems with Cavett, the Tour. First stage, San Michel, he smoked Kittle. He was back. So never write him off. I, I, I mean, I learned my lesson also with Kev. So I always say with Kev, just you feed him him. He can complain a lot. And uh, when I say a lot, I'm diplomatic. <laughs> he, he can be noisy, trust me. It was interesting to see an interview with him the other day when he was talking about his relations, particularly with the media. And he said he has, he feels he has in the past been unfairly picked on, but he says, sometimes I've also been a prick. I mean, do you think that's a, a fair summary? Of course. <sighs> can he, he, he can be a prick. He can be, sorry, my language, fucking idiot. Can he? 
he said things you say like, well, what will you say that for? Ah, but you have to stop me. I said, I can stop you when you say something. But but I, I, I think to love Kev, you have to know him. But then it's not very difficult either, you know. And I think the most, like with Kev, is like breaking a code, you know. He's very loud, you know, he can complain. And of course, I understand you all. So there was written a lot of stuff about him, you know, when people wrote him off, they would say he's famous, he doesn't come back. And and you feel sometimes people actually hope he doesn't come back because then he can learn, you know, to behave well, you know, because he can't be noisy. But but I think you more have to look at our, his teammates, the mechanic, you know, the other riders, the seniors, you know, and the sports directors, okay. Wilfred Peters have a little fallout with him a few years ago, of course, but his teammates always love him. He would always be like life of the party. You go to the breakfast, you go to the dinner table, you always feel a good atmosphere. Even he can be a nightmare one or two hours after the stage when he beaten. That's not fun. Then I go, I walk back to the hotel, I take the team car, I wouldn't jump in the bus. But after massage and, uh, and a shower, I mean, he going around, he says, sorry, sorry, sorry to everybody what he said. And uh, at the dinner, it's just, it's good atmosphere in the team again. And, and that's a big part of Kev also. He always create a very good atmosphere and sometimes also a little bit bad atmosphere, of course. <laughs> but at dinner, the dinner is everything is always good. It's nice. Certainly this year, he's, he's always been thanking his team, uh, making a point of thanking his team and the riders and the, and the staff after every win, hasn't he? He does, and of course, we should remember to thank him also because he makes his team stronger also. And I think sometimes people forget it, you know, like uh, the whole team. I mean, I work with like some of the best sprinters in the world. And uh, from everybody I work with, it's probably Kev who take the word. We have uh, the PowerPoint, the team meeting, whatever we have. And it's not rubbish, but he always talk like, three, four minutes, how he want it. He know 100% how he want it, you know. So we have a plan in his head how we want it, you know, when they have to speed up, when they have to slow down, when they have to cut a corner. He's always, like, very, very dedicated to the team, what he's doing. And for sure, he's make his uh, his guys better also. I mean, I still talk to uh, Pino. I see all riders, you know, when we stayed, uh, was uh, in 13 or 14 estates in Giro Italia. 220 kilometers. Hilly, hilly day. Normally on the paper, he could never make it. But Jerome Pinot, who now is the manager of uh, BNB Hotels, Julian Famore, Stegmans, they wrote like, I never seen them riding before, just because of calf. So he really get the best out of his people when he's, uh, when he's, uh, in that mood also. So I think people have to thank him also. And that the Eddie Merckx stage win record, which he's been unwilling for a long time to talk about, um, he's now equaled it, but um, it must have been important to him. I think it must have been important to Kev. And with the hand again on the Bible, he never spoke about it. He never mentioned it to me about it. I think he has so much respect for Eddie. So... It's probably to beat it is a bit strange also. Eh? I mean, normally in the cycling books, manuals, Bibles, you will say all records belong to Eddie Merckx. And it's not because he's a better cyclist, of course, than Eddie Merckx, but to beat his record must be something very special. And he never really spoke about it, but uh, I think when you won that much 
you probably have a bit of money on your bank account. I mean, to get off your bed, to do this crazy bunch friends, you probably need sort of, sort of gold to keep you going every day, you know, to risk your life. Let's say you risk your life to suffer like nobody. And I think a good goal could probably, even when he didn't, didn't mention, uh, could be to beat Eric's record at the Tour de France. Tour de France. Now he's 36 years old now. Um, how much longer do you think he can go on at this level? Uh, I, I think at this level, of course, it's going to be uh, longer and longer before the wins. But if you ask it me tonight, what would I do? I would say uh, for sure, but he did this year. You sign with Patrick one more year and stay away from Tour de France. Don't go there anymore. It's too hard. Do some smaller races, have some pleasure with cycling. He loves cycling and then get a job into the world of cycling. So you know what you have to do when you quit cycling also. So uh, I think he go on. I think even next year there could be a, a few states win at the tour also. But if you ask it me, I would say, please don't. Enough is enough. It's hard days. Now we're going to go through the Pyrenees. And you know how it is in cycling. You know, I know Patrick is a smart man and they probably ask him, after the worst states in the Pyrenees, Patrick has to ask him, you want to do the tour one more day? Then he's going to say no in the bus. Okay. So uh, let's see. We have Fabio also, but that's that's for the next year. We'll take that problem, that problem next year. We solve it. No worries. Okay. Well, look, best wishes to you and the team for the rest of the tour and the rest of the season. And uh, Brian Holm, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer. Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance. No more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the Lacquer Collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day. With no depreciation or excess, they've ditched annual contracts. With Lacquer, if you want to leave, you can, anytime. If you head over to www.lacquer.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULER. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinnow, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. Thanks, Ola. And speaking of Ned Bolting, the current edition of Ruler, the Tour de France issue 104, includes a splendid column by him about the much maligned publicity caravan. Ned is obviously very busy at the moment doing his commentary job, so his words are read here by the actor Phil Wright. 
whose son, Fred, incidentally, is doing a great job himself as the youngest rider on this year's tour. You can read a really good interview with him on ruler.cc. Fred, that is, not Phil. Anyway, Down With The Pub by Ned Bolting. In my bloated library of books about the Tour de France, which spills forth from my bookshelves any which way, I am proud to claim ownership of arguably the most niche book ever written on the subject. Yes, I'll wager that not one of the ruler readership can also boast in their collection the quite stultifying Le Caravan de Tour de France, Histoire et Histoires, by Yves Arnal. Published in 2013, Arnal's definitive account of the origins and rich past of the publicity caravan is part historical document, part memoir. For Arnal was at the helm of the entire nonsense for a quite staggering 36 years. Imagine that. 36 years of sitting on committees negotiating the contractual terms for the inclusion of dishwasher tablets and biros in the following year's pageant. I've always loved the tour, recalls the author wistfully. I've loved its ambiance, but even more than that, perhaps, I have loved the publicity caravan. Arnold's passion for advertising is so profound that he is not afraid to admit how he often loses interest completely in the race so as to dedicate himself all the more to the caravan. The origins of the world's worst idea date back to the time when Henri de Grange departed from the model of trade teams which dominated the early tours and began his decades-long experiment with running national teams instead, all provided with the same equipment. To make up for the shortfall in the race's finances, the publicity caravan was born. Even before its inception, it had been noted that brands were beginning to exploit association with the tour by turning up at the finish lines and hawking their wares. That they would eventually be charged to do this was perhaps inevitable. What was less inevitable was the march towards its own extinction that would ensue, as harmless chocolate manufacturers with gentle accordion players in tow eventually gave way to the kinds of super float we see on the race nowadays, featuring ear-splitting exhortations to shop at certain supermarkets, massive cauliflowers nestling next to similarly oversized fibreglass tomatoes and topped off with a couple of students hanging upside down in harnesses pretending that they're having the time of their lives. Of course, I am rather joylessly missing the point. The publicity caravan is actually more important than the race itself. There is a welter of evidence to back this up, as ASO's own market research reveals. More people go to the side of the road in the hope that they might be tossed some almost completely valueless plastic than those who make their pilgrimage to the race in order to catch a glimpse of Pierre Roland in a breakaway. And, if I am honest... I too have from time to time been swept up in the madness of it all, chasing some poor kid down the road because I was overlooked on the line when they were throwing out Koshinu hats or PMU sun visors made out of card. 
I too have demanded a tiny sachet of Haribo and then another one. I have on occasion basked in the cool misting cloud of the Vitel water spray people who spray water at people. Once I tried to steal a tiny sausage from the angry sausage man who is no longer on the race and I was publicly lambasted by him in front of hundreds of bored, cheering onlookers, all wearing oversized Champion baggy t-shirts and credit Leonese caps. It's true that road racing is about as green as a Concorde idling at a set of traffic lights, but surely it can rein in this gargantuan excess. I mean, what point is there to riders carefully jettisoning their gel wrappers in the zone there if the caravan has already been through blithely hurling crap at people's faces from massively polluting trucks? When pre-fracking Sky suggested we pass on plastic, it seems that ASO took them far too literally. So, and this would break Arnal's commercially-minded heart to hear. Surely the time has come to move on from madness. I mean, last year they pushed their luck when they stood accused of spraying the roads around Nice with a soapy residue seemingly specifically designed to unseat bicycle riders. Perhaps we should flip the paradigm. People should pay for the opportunity to throw their household rubbish back at the brands which created it. Imagine turning up with your wheelie bin and trying to match its contents to the liveried vehicles passing by. Quick, pass me the ketchup bottles, Heinz are coming. The sight of 10,000 miniature salamis being thrown back at a series of salami-themed lorries could yet become as iconic as the pissed-up loons at Dutch Corner, one of the marvels of the greatest race on earth. One can but dream. You've been listening to Down With The Pub by Ned Bolting, read by Phil Wright from Ruler, issue 104 which is still available if you head to ruler.cc. And while you're there, check out the range of clothing, accessories and books available in the shop, including Mountains, Epic Climbs by Michael Bland, a collection of some of his extraordinary photographs from climbs across Europe. Michael has an exhibition of some of these pictures over the next month at the Riverhouse Barn in Walton-on-Thames in Surrey. And he joins us now. Michael, what's the idea behind the exhibition? The exhibition came about because the Riverhouse Barn actually is run by Emily Bolting. Emily is Ned's sister, and I believe maybe it was Ned that put Emily in touch with me and suggested it be a nice summer exhibition during the Tour de France. So that's really how it came about. Well, I didn't know that, and that is extraordinary, because the the Bolting family are basically taking over this podcast. Ah, there you go. (laughs) So the pictures in the book are all um, taken on uh, a large format camera, aren't they? Um, what, What difference does that make, especially when you blow the pictures up big? Well, there's a couple of things. Um... One is actual image quality when you're using a large format camera and a a medium format digital back. I mean, the actual fidelity and the image quality is so much better than on a 35mm. And so a 35mm really restricts you to how big you can blow up those images without the image starting to break up or and having problems. But also, 
the thing that doesn't get necessarily appreciated it, it it's more of a process so when you're using a medium format camera you're, you're basically slowing down that whole process of taking photos and so it becomes a, a sort of more considered approach you're not really trying to be a reportage photographer at this point because you're shooting on a tripod i tend to shoot it straight into a laptop as well so i can see those images and you're really sort of trying to take one shot not multiple shots for me personally i'm trying to look at creating a kind of classical landscape image uh, in terms of composition and light and things like that rather than trying to capture any action specifically so that, that that's the main difference i think and when you saw these pictures on the wall at the exhibition in the big print format um what did you think my whole background is actually printmaking so i've always been a big fan of the printed work for me it's really important i think it's maybe something that's got lost in this day and age with social media and stuff like that where people got so used to seeing images on iphones and tablets and things like that they've forgotten the, the impact of actually printing out something large and putting it on the wall and standing back and studying that image the, the work that i produce is basically these large grand landscapes which also have small amounts of detail and you really only see this in a large format print you know when it's blown up big and you can kind of stand back and you can see the overall scene but then also see those small details as well so for me, that, that is always the end result, is to see an image as a printed work if possible. And you've got a couple of guests coming along during the exhibition as well. Yes, there's a few things happening during the month, um, but we're hoping to have Philippa York up on the 6th of August, which will be great. She'll be talking about mountains and Matt Stevens will probably be interviewing her. Uh, I believe Ned Bolting will be there as well, which will be great. Um, Matt Rendell's also doing an evening where he's promoting his book on Colombian cycling. So that could be really exciting. And then there's a few other things with Hot Chili doing some rides from there this weekend. Also Sigma Sport are getting involved in it as well. So yeah, no, it's, it should be a really good event. Well, the question is, why aren't you up in the mountains at the moment, maybe on the tour, taking or near the tour without the crowds, taking pictures or, or you know, having spent five years doing it, have you moved on to something else? No, far from it. I think it's a life, lifetime project, this one now. Um, I would love to be in the mountains is the honest truth. Um, but obviously with COVID and everything else, it's, it's proved very, very difficult to juggle those restrictions with getting out there and also my other commitments with my commercial clients and things like that. At the moment, and literally just before we spoke, we tried to get out to the Dolomites to actually shoot a glacier for a client. It's very difficult because currently you have to self-isolate when you get there for five days. And so that then has a knock-on effect with all the other work and things like that. So yeah, hopefully everything will get back to normal soon and I can get back out there. Well, let's hope so. And the exhibition Art of Mountains runs until August the 8th at the Robert Phillips Gallery in Walton-on-Thames. Michael, uh, Michael Bland, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's it from this Ruler podcast. There'll be a tech podcast along next week.